This is Self Work, and I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. At Self Work, we'll discuss psychological and emotional issues common in today's world and what to do about them. I'm Dr. Margaret, and Self Work is a podcast dedicated to you taking just a few minutes today for your own self work. Hi, and welcome to Self Work. I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. I'm a clinical psychologist, and I practice out of Fayetteville, Arkansas. I've been doing therapy for over 20 years, and self-work is based on my own passion for trying to extend the walls of my practice and to help other people learn what I have learned from the hundreds of patients I've seen at this point. I also want to reach out to people who might never walk in a therapist's office. Perhaps you might consider it if you listen to this and think, oh, well, she kind of makes sense, or perhaps this is the work you'll do. Your self-work. First of all, today, before we get to the topic of anger, which we're going to talk about in a fair amount of detail, I want to really thank the recent people who have left a review on iTunes. It means so much to me. Thank you, D. Miller, TX Piano Gal, OTN R Supporter, Kelly6622. All of you within the last month have left a review, and it really gives me motivation and helps me believe that people are interested in what I'm offering here at Self Work. I only started podcasting back in October, so I'm kind of a newbie. So any feedback I can get is really appreciated. So thanks so much. Today, we're going to be talking about anger. How did you learn to express it or... Perhaps you learned to not express it in the family you grew up in. We're going to talk about three major ways that parents teach their children about anger. And then I picked up a great article by Jenna McCarthy, who is a relationship expert and also a humorist. I thought this article was specifically helpful because she talked about different personality types, how each of them in an unhealthy way expressed their anger and what perhaps they could learn to do with it instead. I'll also add some things from my own clinical experience, of course. And then we've got an email from a listener about perfectly hidden depression, but this time it's what do you do if you love someone with perfectly hidden depression? I've talked about PhD, as I call it, on episodes 3, 4, and 21 so far. There will be more to come. So if you're interested in this concept, perhaps you can listen in on those episodes. Today, we're talking about anger. I think anger gets kind of a bad rap because when people think of anger, they think about angry actions. They think about abuse or violence. And anger can be about so much more than that. But we learn how to express anger in the families we grow up in. For example, I don't remember fighting in my family. And I have the definite memory of having my first knockdown drag out with my ex-husband I didn't even know how to do it. I didn't know how to argue. I certainly didn't know how to fight fair. But there are really three ways that families model for us, our parents model for us, what to do with anger. Either it's respected, it's avoided, or it's used abusively. First, let's talk about the respected kind. Sometimes, you know, anger is just about irritability. You got up on the wrong side of the bed, you're having a bad hair day, you're in a bad mood. So you're just irritable. Hopefully you can recognize then before you do or say something you'll regret. And we all have those days, right? (laughs) Yet a lot of anger is 
more important and deeper than that. It's really about identity, who you are and what you care about. The anger reveals your own values. For example, when I started volunteering at the domestic violence shelter in Dallas, really domestic violence hadn't been on my radar too much. And as soon as I started volunteering there, learning more about it, I couldn't see a bruise on someone's arm without jumping to the conclusion, which was, of course, not good, that perhaps she was being hit. And I had to rein that in and understand that sometimes bruises are just bruises. But my identity had changed. What made me angry had changed. What healthy families do is understand and support this kind of anger, the kind of anger that actually reveals a value. For example, if someone tells a demeaning joke and you feel your skin crawl, or someone speeds through a stoplight and they nearly miss a child crossing the street and you get angry, that's a sign that a boundary has been crossed for you. Something very important to you has been threatened or disregarded or even mocked. So you get mad. Now, what you do with that anger depends on your personality, what you were taught. But anger isn't violent in and of itself. The power of anger can be respected and voiced respectfully. It's a good idea to wait until you're not so mad, because basically it's hard to have anger and empathy all at the same time. So you can use words that are calmer, less blaming or not blaming at all. For example, if someone says something that makes your skin crawl, you don't have to punch them in the face. You can tell them you don't like what they've said. You would prefer they not tell that joke around you. Instead of racing after the car that ran through the stop sign, you can call the police and give a description. So there are a lot of things that you can do with your anger that are constructive, not destructive. I think talking about anger can even build empathy. And in some ways, when you think about long-term relationships where there are going to be things that make you angry, you know, what other relationships keep on going when there's disappointment, when there's anger, when there's hurt? When I know that I've made my husband angry or disappointed him in some way, and he still is with me and wants to be with me, then I feel a greater sense of trust and intimacy with him. Also, talking about anger can build empathy. Sometimes you don't know that something you do or say is going to make a friend mad or make your partner mad. You just don't know. The really difficult part is when someone's anger is focused on you. (laughs) It's very hard not to get defensive, but to try to listen and learn so that your partnership can become stronger. Sometimes you have to ask them, I'm not in a place right now where I can hear your anger Or you can ask them to try to change their tone so that you can hear better. But still, the message you're giving each other is that when you're angry, that it is respected and you're going to try to learn from it. That builds incredible trust. But then there are families where anger is avoided at all costs. I'm sure some of you could say, I never heard my parents fight. That's basically the kind of family I was reared in. You know, we can give them the benefit of the doubt, those parents, and say they strongly believe that conflict shouldn't be handled in front of the kids and then did a really good job with keeping those kinds of conversations private. But I bet the children still knew that they disagreed and saw a resolution to the disagreement. That's what's so important. But there are many families where conflict is totally avoided. 
you've got two people or a whole family who don't know how to talk about and resolve their differences. They don't know how to find a compromise or just putting up with the discomfort of knowing there's disagreement. And what happens? Relationships can stagnate. They can lead to an active denial of problems. For example, many a couple hasn't touched each other in years. They never talk about the credit card debt that hangs over their heads, or they silently watch as their partner gets drunk every night, but they never argue. There are really severe problems going on, and it's just not talked about. Maybe you've heard statements like, I don't think it would change anything. We'd never agree, so why fight? I don't like to argue. It's so unpleasant. It is hard work, but it is worth it. Why is it worth it? (laughs) Because anger that's avoided can lead to tremendous resentment and blind insensitivity. One partner may eventually have had it, totally withdraw, justify having an affair, or even file for divorce. Yet the other may never have recognized the extent of the emotional damage. I can't tell you the number of people that have said in my office to their partner, but I didn't know that this bothered you so much. I didn't know how angry you were. And they said, well, I tried to tell you, but you didn't listen. And usually the not listening is about just being uncomfortable with conflict. You also may have grown up in an avoidant family. You never learned to voice your identity or your opinion or even believe in your own worth and then express those opinions appropriately. But you know what? Those skills can be learned at any age. Then, sadly, there are families where anger is used abusively and conflict isn't allowed. It's not that it's avoided. It's not even allowed. These families don't have any safety or security. They can be violent, abusive, and children just try to protect themselves as best they can. You'll hear statements like, I know better than to make mom mad. Or, when we'd hear dad's car in the driveway, we'd all run to our rooms. Family members can be so dominated by the abuser that to disagree would only lead to further torment. They know not to rock the boat, or their own private hell will begin all over again. You can be very angry in these families, but as there's no safe outlet, you can absorb an abusive identity yourself, you can try to fight back, you can become invisible, or you can try to escape in some other way. Now, the good thing to remember in the avoidant or the abusive families, you don't have to be governed by what you learned from your family. In fact, in episode 12, I talk a lot about becoming an emotional grown-up. And if you're interested in learning how to change your own personal patterns, maybe ones that worked in your childhood but don't necessarily work now, I'd invite you to listen to that episode. Now we're going to turn a little bit to your personality style and how you specifically might choose to express your anger. This I'm basing on this article by Jenna McCarthy, who is an author. Some of her books are pretty much screwed. (laughs) I still got it. I just can't remember where I put it. And she has a TED Talk, What You Don't Know About Marriage, which actually I've included in the show notes that I think is pretty funny. The first kind of anger style is the exploders. Now, this is not necessarily abusive anger. This is people who just tend to take it and take it and take it and take it and take it, and then they explode. 
So what that means, of course, is they're more likely to say things they don't mean because it's soaping up. There is a diagnostic category called intermittent explosive disorder, which takes this way further than just having an explosive temper. There are people who literally will tear their shirts off or hit their heads on walls just because they're angry. It's a very severe disorder. So what do you do if you tend to explode? Actually, if you just wait, count to 5, 10, 15, hum, do anything you need to do to just wait a few seconds or even minutes. Because research has shown that the longer you wait, you will outweigh the neurological anger response, which is kind of interesting. Then frequently that blow up is really a way of hiding your true feelings that could be underneath the anger. If I explode at my husband because he's coming home late from work and I've got dinner ready, I'm really probably mad about something else, not necessarily him coming home late from work. So I've got to find the words to identify the feelings that I actually have. The second kind of anger style is self-abuse. People who take all the blame that are overly responsible. Literally, you can find a way to make everything your fault. Now, Freud would have said that this is anger turned inward, and that was his definition of depression. It also has a huge component of shame. It's not just that you've done something that you regret, but that you are a bad person. So what can you do about this when you're a self-abuser, when you shame yourself constantly? You have to think what you would say to someone else. Am I really responsible totally for this? Do I really believe this? You also obviously need to work on your own self-worth, your own sense of competence. You need to write down the things that you know that you do well and give yourself credit for those things. You might need to seek therapy for that particular thing. And I'm going to do a podcast on increasing self-worth because I think it's an interesting topic and one that sometimes is made way too complicated. A third style of anger is avoidance. Oh, I know. It's fine. It's fine. Everything's good. Women especially, of course, are told to deny their anger. It's not ladylike. It could ruin your reputation. No one will like you. And depending on the kind of home you grew up in, whether it was avoidant or abusive, you never learned that anger can be a healthy emotion. Of course, what do you do when you have all that pent-up anger that you just don't do anything about? You express it in other ways. You excessively shop, you overeat, you overdrink. Somehow or another, you just try to hide your anger. And basically, you're also not allowing the relationship to move into a place where anger is heard, hurt is respected, and you give your partner a chance to show you that he or she can actually understand and at least modulate their behavior. And that builds trust. This also, I think, has to do with setting appropriate boundaries. For example, let's go back to that husband who's late for dinner. If he's constantly late for dinner, if he's constantly not being where he tells me he's going to be at a certain time, 
and I don't say anything about that, how can he fix the behavior if he doesn't know what's wrong, right? And so I'm setting a boundary by saying, you know, once in a while, I certainly don't mind and understand completely that you could be late. But there's a pattern being established that I don't like and I don't feel respects our relationship. That way, you can have an open and honest talk about it, hopefully. I really appreciate it when my patients say, you made me angry last week. And certainly, there have been some that have told me that. Because if I don't know what made them angry or upset them, then I can't help them work through their own anger. I can't help them learn that they can express anger to someone who's safe and that I'm going to hear it and try to respond to it. It's about believing that your boundaries, your own being is important. Then you can always pull out the, if I were giving a friend advice, what would I tell them to do? Would I really say it doesn't matter that your spouse doesn't come home when he or she tells you they're going to? No, probably not. I'd probably say, you know, I think you ought to talk to them about that. So sometimes giving yourself the advice you'd give someone else is very helpful. Then the fourth anger style, and that's sarcasm. And boy, there's a lot of that in my family. (laughs) I think there's fun sarcasm, there's witty sarcasm, but thin sarcasm can take a bit of a cruel bent. You know, you can say to somebody, well, I, I was just kidding. I was just kidding. I was just teasing. But when they're hurt and when you cross that line, it's important that you realize you're doing it and the impact it's having on other people who you love. So you have to figure out and be very honest with yourself whether your brand of sarcasm is helpful and funny and witty and everybody laughs, or if it's used to control or to undermine. Maybe you don't know how to say things directly. Maybe being assertive is very difficult for you, so you use sarcasm. But there are other ways. And then a closely related anger style to sarcasm is being passive-aggressive. Maybe, again, the problem is you really don't know how to stand up for yourself. So you keep your anger under wraps, but you do undermining things. Things that you know the other person isn't going to like. Maybe even manipulative things. So you end up looking like you don't really care about what's important to the other person. Because you're being manipulative. So the easy answer, and of course this is not so easy when it's your pattern, is to voice your anger rather than acting on it but calling it something else. And then last but not least is someone who's just kind of a powder. It's just habitually irritated. A way I have of understanding this is that anger or irritation can become the emotion through which we channel all our emotions, whether we're sad, whether we're afraid, whether we're bored, whether we're feeling alienated, whatever it is, we just turn it into, I'm just mad. I'm just mad all the time. I'm sure you know people like this. If you are someone like this, it's a terrible, really, way to live because you never can truly enjoy the moment. It might be equated with having a chip on your shoulder, feeling like the world owes you something, and so you're just habitually a grump. That's my fancy clinical word, by the way, a grump. So what do these folks need to do? 
They really need to look at where their sense of either victimization comes in. Maybe they were abused or victimized in some way. Maybe there is a secret they have kept for many years that they were hurt, that they need to talk about. Then they can also understand that the flip side of anger is sadness. So most likely they are very sad about something that they're just not realizing or talking about. And it's so important to find someone that you can begin sharing that hurt with. Again, with any of these styles of anger, we're often not really angry about the thing that we think we're angry about. If you look underneath, sort of at the underbelly of your emotions, you turn them over and say, if I weren't so angry, what would I be feeling? That's a question that I often ask my patients. What would be there? And if you can answer that question, then that's the direction you need to go and try to find the words to express that sadness or fear. Good luck. So now we have an email from a listener, and I'm getting so many of these, and I really appreciate it. I will answer you. I may not feature what you've asked me on the podcast, but I will answer you to the best of my ability. Now, I will say that some people are asking if I will actually do therapy with them via the internet, and I do not do that. In fact, it's not even legal in the state of Arkansas. Now, there are people doing it, mind you, but I get so much information from someone sitting right in front of me that I don't think I'd do it justice by doing internet therapy. But I'm very flattered that people are asking. So here we go with the email. I'm going to change the names, of course. My name is Mike, and I have a wonderful girlfriend by the name of Jenny. I recently found out about perfectly hidden depression, and my girlfriend and myself believe that she has it. She's always struggled to talk about things, and she will sometimes brush off traumatic things as if they aren't that big a deal or that she thinks other people have it worse. I'm trying to get her to talk about it, but I don't know how. I want to help more than anything, but I don't know where to start or what to do. I'm here to listen. I love her more than anything. I was wondering if you could give me some advice as to how to treat it best or what I can do or where to begin. Thank you for your time. First of all, it's nice to hear that this kind of love (laughs) can be expressed so openly and genuinely. That was nice to hear. So here's my response. Morning, Mike. One of the hardest things for someone who identifies with perfectly hidden depression to do is to confront and begin to reveal what's under the emotional surface of their lives. They become so accustomed to closeting things away and presenting a cheery front that another response to pain or sadness seems foreign to them. If your girlfriend has recognized that she has this pattern, she will have to take the risk of opening up to someone and to herself when she's ready. She may not even have words to express how she feels, especially if she experienced trauma at an early age. You can love her and support her, but she's the one who has to decide to take the step. I then went on to add that Dr. Brene Brown's books, including The Gifts of Imperfection, are an excellent source and a place to start. And of course, my episodes on Perfectly Hidden Depression. Again, that's 3, 4, and 21 if you're interested. You know, this brings up for me many, many times that family members have called and wanted to make an appointment for their 
loved ones. Now, of course, they can do that if they're children, but if they're over 18, they can't. And sometimes that's very, very frustrating. You can see the illness. You can see the problem that your loved one is having, and yet you feel very helpless to do anything about it. What you can do is either get into therapy yourself and model for them what it's like to receive treatment, to receive help, or you can continue to encourage them, and I frequently give people this advice, you can encourage them in this way. You can tell them how it feels to be you to watch them hurt. For example, you can say, every time I see that you've been crying, I get so sad for you. Or in the case of perfectly hidden depression, I can see you running yourself ragged, and I feel helpless because it's so hard for you to stop, and I think you're exhausted. What can I do to help? So you let them know from your viewpoint what you're seeing and talk about yourself. Most people will dig in their heels if you say, I think you need to go to therapy. It's just not going to work out. Now, of course, if you believe that they are at the risk of hurting themselves, that's a whole different matter and one in which you need to involve a family doctor, a pastor, friends, other family members, a therapist in order to hold up the mirror to someone that they are on the brink of severe self-destructiveness. So I hope all of that is helpful. I want to thank you for listening to this episode of Self Work and any of the others that you've listened to. I so appreciate it. There are lots of ways of getting in touch with me if you'd like. My website is drmargaretrutherford.com and I blog there weekly. Or my email, which is askdrmargaret at drmargaretrutherford.com. Some of you have reached out to me and let me know just who you are because, again, as I've said in other podcasts, I only know where you're from. Oh, and by the way, I finally got a download in Wyoming. (laughs) So thanks to that listener in Wyoming. But I know whether you're in Washington, D.C., or whether in the U.K., in Australia, in San Francisco, wherever you are, or even in my home state of Arkansas. Thanks, you are, Kansans. I really would love to know how old you are, why you like listening to mental health podcasts, and anything you might like for me to talk about. One listener has asked me to talk about infertility, which I'm going to in a future podcast. So I'd love to hear from you. And of course, as I thanked some people earlier, I'd so appreciate it if you'd leave me a rating or review wherever you listen and subscribe. That really helps me believe that people not only want to hear one podcast, but are interested in other kinds of subjects. I'm Dr. Margaret, and you've been listening to Self Work. Self Work.